I moved to Charleston right out of college. I was 23, 22, 23, somewhere around there from Chicago. And I moved to Charleston sight unseen. And the first job that I had here was actually a teacher um, at Palmetto Christian Academy, which is the little school that's here at East Cooper. And all those years ago, it was even smaller. And a private school teacher salary 13 years ago was pretty tiny. All right, so I moved here and had my kind of rattly car, moved here sight unseen. Um, and I was staying with my mom and dad right out of college looking for a job and I was looking at the apartment finder stuff and um, I found this place on Rifle Range Road, Riverwood. Anybody know where that is? Anybody live? Ever lived in Riverwood? Really? Well, it was the cheapest place I could find. Uh, again, I didn't know anybody so I wasn't roommates with anybody. Uh, apartment 1E, it was right across the hall from um, the rotating Mormon missionaries, you know? And so there was always two new guys there <laughs> all the time wearing the same thing. And, uh, you know, um, so I was, more, I was Mormon for a little while. <laughs> and uh, those guys were on their missionary journey, and it was just there's this rotating spot. So, um, And I didn't know anybody, and I moved here in the summer before class started and I moved here a little bit earlier than I intended to. I, I kind of had a miscommunication with the school on when they wanted me here and so I ended up being here like a month a month earlier and um, like I didn't know anybody didn't have a job so I kind of set up my apartment um, and I had I mean I was paying for gas with with change you know I was like and so I wasn't really out doing much um, but I had the 10 speed that my mom and dad gave me in eighth grade for Christmas one year. All right, so I, my source of entertainment became uh, biking. And so if you know where Riverwood Apartments is on Rifle Range Road, it's just a stone's throw from uh, Ben Sawyer where you cross over onto Sullivan's Island. And so what I would do is I would just bike the islands. I'd get up in the morning and um, Sometimes I would go to the library and get free DVDs and like just bike the islands, watch a movie, make like SpaghettiOs for lunch because I didn't have any, you know, and I just was trying to fill my time. And I would come to church, but I, you know, was in the process of meeting people. And so I started biking this, this uh, circuit a lot, sometimes twice a day. It was about 12 miles, and, but I'm on this like this 10 speed that I got as an eighth grader and all the gears were seized up. So it only had whatever gear it was seized up on. Um, and... Um, and I would go over the, the Ben Sawyer Bridge onto Sullivan's Island and then, you know, trek as I'd, I'd like to ride the road as close to the ocean as possible and just kind of have that ocean road view. And then over um, the inlet there onto IOP and then over the connector and then back down Rifle Range Road. And uh, it was summertime, so I'd be sweating like crazy. But I would just kind of do that all the time. And um, I lost a bunch of weight because <laughs> I was hardly eating, you know, and the biking all the time. Um, and this, this is one of my memories that I have from doing that all the time is you're sitting there just kind of alone with your thoughts I didn't have any I wasn't listening to anything but I was sitting there making pennies um, but yet driving by these magnificent mansions oceanfront and I think if, if there's a list of my weaknesses um, it's probably um, covetousness you know and materialism is something that's easy for me to get hooked into and I'm just driving by these houses, and I, I've always been intrigued with architecture. And um, I'm just seeing these huge places thinking, that would be nice. You know? I mean, look at, they have a pool. You know, look at those wraparound porches. You know, is that house really four stories? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Like, okay, can, you, can you imagine, like, bringing, like, dreaming about bringing all your family here, and you've got this great view. And I'm just sitting there, and it's beautiful weather, cycling, and I'm finding myself kind of, well, not kind of, but really wanting it, kind of wanting it all, you know, and what kind of going through that process of is it, you know, what, what would it take to get into one of these, and even, and this is, this, this is a little childish, but even like, what are ways that I could, to, could somehow, you know, make it rich quick, but still do the work of the ministry, <laughs> you know, I mean, just like, I mean, these are sinful thoughts of like, because this would just be awesome, 
And I'd find myself uh, there as I'm, as I'm biking for a couple miles through the islands looking at these mansions. And I had a distinct memory of wondering what the family looked like in these oceanfront mansions. You know, if, with mom and dad, a couple kids, sitting in their big, nice uh, dining room, having dinner. And I kind of would envision, I wonder what they do, I wonder what they talk about. And I would ask myself the question, um, I wonder if they're happy, you know? Because you always kind of think about things like you have the mansion, but if, if you're bickering and you're fighting and mom and dad are splitting up or, you know, you never see dad because he's working so hard to pay for stuff like this, like, is that, is that worth it, you know? And so I would sit there and, you know, ride my bike and look at the mansion and then try to imagine the family inside the mansion and wonder, are they happy? And I always... Again, this, these are all just stories I'm trying to share with you that are happening in my head. But I'm, I always, you know, would imagine the dad, that he was successful. I mean, you would assume that he was successful if he's able to afford something like this. Is he a good father? Um, if he's successful, he must have been excellent at what he does, whatever, whatever that happens to be. Um, but unfortunately, a lot of times you... you you see success in the world or in the business world, and it's at a sacrifice, you know? And so it's like, are they sacrificing the, the family for the sake of having this type of, of material possessions? Um, and, it, and it starts, in my mind, it started to get pitiful pretty quick. Does that make sense? You know, like, I, I don't know if I, I want that. I, I don't want to sacrifice those important things um, to get wealthy or to have that status or to have that magnificent of a house. But I think that maybe we've all seen Christians, believers, who have somehow been able to balance success and excellence with uh, family, okay? And um, I know people at this church who are incredibly successful have monetarily accumulated quite a bit from their excellence at what they do. And at the same time, it's, I'm thinking of men that I've gotten to know through the student ministry, fathers, who I, I'm watching them be great dads, you know? And they're deacons at the church, or they're elders on the elder board. And it's like, but, but there's a contingency that's able to do this, right? Like, it seems like there's a contingency of people out there who are able to keep an impeccable testimony at work, while at the same time, uh, being a, a really successful, like I've I've seen that, um, and so it, it's almost it seems inspiring to me. Like look at what you've accomplished, and I think I feel like a couple of these men have been speaking to us at Connect. You know, like people who've they've had their highs and they've had their lows, but these are some of the things that they've done. And you look at what they've been able to accomplish, and you're like, wow! Like I want that. I want the testimony. You know, I want that excellent pursuit of Christ, but I want the I want, to be, I want to be excellent at what I do, too, and the things that kind of come along with that. Um, a mentor of mine, when I was in high school, gave me a note once that spoke of excellence. And it, it, I, was a high, I was a senior in high school, and I remember reading this note that he gave me. And at that moment, and from that moment forward, I still recall what he wrote. I still have it, actually. And I've always thought that I, want to, I just want to be excellent at what I do professionally and I try to do that my job right now is to be a pastor and so I try to I try to do the things that I do well and that was really inspiring from this guy Dr. Gravio was his name um, to do life with excellence but one of the things about excellence is that if you're going to do something with excellence then really by the nature of excellence and by the definition of excellence, you're going to have to sacrifice other things somewhere. Somewhere along the line, if you're going to say, I want to be excellent at this, it's going to require enough or more of you. That means I cannot then be also excellent at this. And, and, and then really thinking about what that means and chewing on it and that the pursuit of excellence really requires a fair amount of mental capacity to say, what does this look like? How do I define excellence? 
and how do I prioritize these things and actually make calculated decisions to not prioritize these things. I'm not saying that these things are, are good or bad, but it has to be a mental process that you take. So I think one of the questions that I want to ask us and that I want to look at this text is, uh, what does excellence look like in the life of the believer? And because we have to have definition to excellence. We can't just say, be excellent at your walk with Christ. Now go and be excellent because Bones might have one version of what he sees as excellent in his walk with Christ. And TJ might have another, another version. But scripture tells us, you know, so we can't just define it ourselves because that would be really kind of self-worship. Like, I'm going to say, I'm going to define myself as excellent. No, we need to go to scripture and see what scripture says and what does it mean to be pursuing Christ with excellence. And how can I do that in the regular, everyday world that we live in without sacrificing uh, things that we ought not sacrifice? So, with that in mind, Hebrews chapter 3, now I'm going to read for us verses 1 through 6. Hebrews 1, Hebrews 3, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Hebrews 3, 1 through 6 that we just read here, really gives us two things as a believer. Right? We see two things that are clear in this text. One is a charge. All right? We see a charge from the author to believers, a command, a challenge, an exhortation. And the second thing that we see here is a game plan of this is how you accomplish the charge that I'm giving to you. Uh, you know, if, you, if you're in sales, you know, your boss might give you a charge, and it might be as broad as saying, make the sale, close the deal. All right? And you take that charge and you say, okay, well, then I'm going to go figure out the best way that I can accomplish that goal. Or the boss could say, make the deal, make the sale, close the deal, and let me tell you how you do it. You're going to do A, and then you're going to do B, and then you're going to do C, and that's going to lead you to the goal. So in the text here, we see both the charge, but we also see that here's how you do it. Here's the game plan. Um, the text begins by identifying both who you are and what you're supposed to be about. All right. Look at the beginning of uh, verse 1. It says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. It's important to identify who you are and what you're about for many reasons because you can't really identify excellence or really what the goal is if you don't first identify who you are. Now, I don't, wanna, I don't want this to be too elementary and basic because we know that we're looking at the Bible and we know that we're here in the Christian context of the church and we're speaking to most people in this room who claim to be Christ followers. So I don't want to make light of the fact of, of course, we're, we're speaking in the context of all of us as believers, but whatever job you do, okay, your teacher, your accountant, um, or if you're a full-time student, it's pretty important for you to define excellence in what you do based on what you do. You know, if you're a teacher in the public school system, um, your identity as a teacher is going to be very different than being an accountant. And 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 and, and, the, and the the premise and the basis behind what you're doing and why um, are going to be very different. And so, the author here in Hebrews chapter one, or I keep saying one, Hebrews chapter three, is reiterating the fact that we are speaking very specifically about who we are and what we're supposed to be about. Holy brothers, holy brothers. This isn't just a call out to like, hey you, or hey bro, uh, but to be, to be holy 
in the biblical context is not something to, to, to breeze over. It's not something to take lightly. It is something that, it is a word that is designed to emphasize the set-apartness of it. That's the whole idea of holy. Like, you don't say the word holy unless you are drawing attention to the fact that you are not like the others, you know? To be holy means to be consecrated, all right? To, to say that I have a group of normal, and I'm taking something from the normal and removing it and setting it aside for a greater purpose. That is holy. Holy brothers. Set aside brothers. Consecrated brothers. Two weeks ago, the, the text leading up to these verses speak very specifically about how Jesus Christ considers himself a brother to fellow believers. All right? It says... In Hebrews 2, verse 11, for he who sanctifies, meaning Jesus, he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, Christians, all have one origin, the Father. That is why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers. So the context leading up to this text is really making a big deal about the fact that Jesus Christ, the holy, sinless Son of God, is counting himself as a brother. All right, so not just a, hey, we live in the same neighborhood, or now we, don't, we have the, not just the same goal, but we are of the same origin. We are the same family. Holy, set-aside brothers. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling. All right? So it's saying, listen, you need to recognize who you are. All right? We, you might get caught up with the regular everydayness of, yeah, 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 I'm a Christian, and I associate myself as a Christian and as a Christ follower, but you need to pause for a second and realize the gravity of that, that you all work around a bunch of people who are not Christians, and you're different than them, all right? That is not um, in any way stating a, a, an opinion of, of worth or of value, but you are brothers with the Son of God. And the God who made all of creation is your father. And that is not the case for other people. And there is gravity with that. There is a high calling with that. There is a heavenly calling here. You who share corporately arm in arm with a heavenly calling. That you are a part of something eternal. Scott Ellington, who spoke on Thursday night, made the statement. He said, um, well, he's a big deal in his industry. You know, um, he's very specialized in what he does, and he's just a big deal in his industry. And he was saying that he gets called and he gets flown out to be keynote speaker at XYZ events with people who are in the, all these different levels of earthquake engineering. And he says, I do it, and I don't think a whole lot of it because it's how I've been trained. But he says, I get in front of a group of believers, and I feel a little giddy because eternity is what we're talking about here. You know? And you remember him saying that. Like, there's more at stake here. Even though it was only 35 of us there, you know, at Connect, like, we're, we're not talking about a building, you know, we're talking about eternity, that you share in a heavenly calling. There was an awesome yet cheesy movie released in the late 90s called Armageddon. <laughs> Raise your hand if you've seen this masterpiece. Yeah. All right. Yeah, received how many Oscars? Oh, none. That's right. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, Ben Affleck, Ving Rhames, you know, Bruce Willis, Steve Buscemi, just, you know, a, a, a list. Yeah, a, a list of, yeah. And so it's based on a true story. And it's not based on a true story. And... The idea, the idea is that um, there's these uh, oil rig drillers who get called up by the highest level of, of the president calls and says, we need your help. You know, these are roughneck guys, all dirty, wearing hard hats, and we need your help because there's an asteroid that's coming to Earth and it's going to destroy mankind as we know it, so we're going to put you on a spaceship and we're going to fly you up there and land you on the backside of the asteroid, right? And then we're going to have you drill, like you're drilling for oil. We're going to drop a bomb in this asteroid and blow the thing up and you know, save mankind, all right? And so half of this movie is uh, the, the, the training process, 
of these guys, of these oil riggers turning how to be astronauts and all this kind of stuff. And, and they're kind of taking it lightly a lot of times. And they're joking around and they're messing with stuff and they're throwing gear and they're saying, you know, we don't want to go by your rules. And they take off at night and play cards and, you know. And it's like they keep, but the NASA guys keep coming back to them and they keep saying, this is a big deal. Like, this is a big deal. And, you know, we're not joking around here. But this, this is about humanity. You know, this isn't about saving the business. This isn't about even national security. It's like, it, and they keep coming back to like, this is, this is about whether or not we can save the whole earth. And so you need, to, you need to change your mindset here that you're about something bigger, which is why we're doing, which is why we're doing this. And that can be lost. You know, you're watching a simple, goofy movie like that, and you're kind of, and it's just, and you're watching it for entertainment's sake. But, but don't we get lost in that sometimes? Like, that you're at your job, but do you remember that you were part of an eternal holy calling as a set-aside people group that has a different status in the eyes of God? And outside the eyes of God, everybody else's status has no weight. You know, it's not like you have competing opinions that matter. Holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling. This is who you are. This is what you're about. Holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling. That your life, your breath, your relationships, your motivations have eternity in mind. And even when you go about the everyday, we need work. We're supposed to be out in the secular work world. That, that's, the, that's part of what life is. But you are set aside. And you are a part of something eternal. And there's a much higher level of urgency when we remember those things. And you must remember those things if you're going to pursue excellence. Then what? Where does the text take us? The second half of the first verse, it says this, Consider Jesus, all right, because of these things, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Because of these, this status that you are, here is now the charge, all right? This is the first part of the two parts that are in this text. This is the charge. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. The NIV doesn't use the word consider. It says Fix your thoughts on Jesus. All right, so help, help me with this here. If the author of Hebrews is talking to all of us, and he's addressing us as holy brothers and sisters, all right, you are part of an eternal heavenly calling. All right? That's who you are. That's what you're about. Your charge is this. Consider Jesus. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. I like these, these, the, two, the two versions of this, of consider and fix your thoughts on Jesus. Because what consider is not saying, and, and this is in our English language, we kind of have different versions of consider. One, one type of consider is, as a simple example, um, I, have, I have weird feet in that my, my toe knuckle, all right? <laughs> If I'm running in my running shoes, we'll always rub through the shoe really fast, and it will and it will break out. All right, and it's it's annoying because running shoes are expensive. Um, and at some point, um, I found the shoe Brooks, you know, Brooks running shoes, and it has kind of solved all my problems with that. And if anybody ever comes to me and says I'm having a problem with shoes, it's easy to be like, oh, have you considered Brooks? You know, it's a great shoe. Almost like, hey, I have this problem I'm trying to work through, and somebody is, simply offers a, uh, an alternative suggestion. Oh, have you considered this? Like, oh, check it out. That's not what it's talking about, all right? It's not like I'm having a hard time in life, and people are saying, hmm, well, you should try Jesus, because you've tried your identity, and you've tried money, and you've tried relationships. You know, you should consider Jesus. It's not what it's talking about, because they're believers, holy brothers, set aside with a, a holy eternal calling, all right? It is saying, fix your thoughts. All of us have limited mental capacity, all right? We are not in a situation where we can just eternally 
um, think and consume information. All right, we, we all have limits emotionally and mentally, and this text is telling us that when you consider Jesus, it means that you are prioritizing him, that you are fixing your thoughts on him, that you are placing him in a, in a place of, I want to pursue excellence here, so I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sacrifice other things so that I can, therefore, then consider Jesus, that I can fix my thoughts on Jesus. And it demands a certain level of mental focus. I love movies. Um, I was on an airplane once, and on airplanes, I feel like I have the opportunity to watch movies that I maybe wouldn't red box. There was a movie called Limitless. Anybody see Limitless? Bradley Cooper. An interesting movie. You know, he takes a drug, and it, and it allows him to think uh, deeper. And, 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 and because he can consume so much more information, he's able to make all of these connections, you know? And so he's able to look at a politician and say, oh, I remember that eight years ago, you know, you took a trip to Peru. And in Peru, the president at that time was so-and-so, and so-and-so knew so-and-so, and they had a drug thing going on there, and you made a connection with them, knowing that eight years later, you're gonna get into office, blah, 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 and it was all right, you know? And he's going through this, the, the whole point of it was that he was in a, an altered state where he could then consume more, and he could be more effective because he can consume all this information. That's just not the way that we are, you know? We have to make decisions to consider Jesus. It's not something that just happens. It's something that we have to say that I am going to put my efforts towards fixing my thoughts on Jesus. I'm going to sacrifice other things in my life so that I can obey the charge that the author of Hebrews has said, and I will consider Jesus. Throughout the New Testament, we have several different times that we see the call or the command to consider. And all of them are things that are deep and heavy and weighty and not natural and demand, I believe, extended mental capacity for us to actually live there. Does that make sense? Let me read a couple of these. You can turn them if you want, but I'm just going to read through these. Romans 6, 11 says this. You must also consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. What does it mean to consider yourself dead to sin? I mean, I know that educationally, and I even know that theologically, but for me to live my life dead to sin and alive to Christ demands mental capacity that sometimes can be exhausting, and, and it actually takes physical time, seconds ticking away on the clock, of me dedicating myself and rearranging even my schedule to say, what does this mean in the life of Danny Beach to be dead to sin? I can't just flippantly spew out rote answers that I learned at Bible college because those are passionless, even if they're true. But what does it mean for me to consider the fact that I'm dead to sin? 1 Corinthians 1.26, it says, Consider your calling, brothers. Similar to what we're looking at here in Hebrews. Not many of you were wise by worldly standards. Not many were powerful or of noble birth. But God chose what was foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God chose what was weak in the world to shame the strong. And God chose what is low and despised so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Consider your calling. Meaning, consider that you bring nothing to the table. That you are not wise at all except for the wisdom that God has given you. That you have no status or authority in the eyes of God except for what God has given you. And I deceive myself that way all the time to think that I'm something bigger than I am because I've been here for a long time. Or I'm a pastor, or I'm doing this right, or I'm doing that right, and say I am somebody, or I know a little bit more, or I haven't blown it majorly in my life, or I blah, 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 and I'm building myself up in ways that are sinful, when the scripture clearly says, consider yourself, that you, you are of, uh, you are nobody except for what God has made you. You come to the table of God with hands open, and they're empty. And then he builds you up. Consider that. 
And that is not something that you lightly consider as you're walking away from lunch. It is something that requires mental capacity and can be exhausting. Later in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23, it says, Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, so that none of you may grow weary or faint-hearted. Why? Because this is exhausting sometimes in life. In your struggle, I'm sorry, and let us consider, all right, again, consider, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Wherever you're sitting, all right, whether or not you know the person right in front of you or not, you know, we're part of the body of Christ here. How do you stir them up to love and good works? How do you stir them up? It's a hard question, isn't it? It takes work. To say, hey, we're part of the body of Christ, stir one another. It doesn't say, pick the three people in this room that you're really close to already, you know, and that you've been in a community group with for four years already, and you were roommates in college with, and you should encourage them. We are the body of Christ, and we need each other. We are not islands. You, because of what Christ has done, has given you authority to speak into other people's lives because you're not speaking your wisdom, you're speaking the gospel, and we all need that, and the person in front of you needs that. And the simple question of consider how to stir up one another to love and good works demands something of you. It, it demands effort and time and this mental capacity of pursuing excellence that is not just a mindset. Even later in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3, it says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Consider Christ. Consider Christ because of what he has gone through and use him as your motivation to get through what you're going through. Have you ever found yourself discouraged? You know? Maybe you're discouraged in... Big things or little things? Maybe there are major issues going on in your life or family. Or maybe it's just simply you're working a job that you don't feel like is going anywhere. Or maybe you have more debt than you want and you don't know what to do about it. Or maybe you're getting out of a relationship you thought was going somewhere or you just long for one that's not there right now. We have the opportunity to consider Jesus and what he's gone through as the answer. But you know what? It takes work and elevated mental capacity for us to say, Jesus paid it all. And all to him I owe. And there's nothing that I need outside of what Jesus has given. That the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want for any more than what my shepherd has given to me. That he is enough. His grace is enough. It is sufficient. That I need nothing more than what he has given me. That takes work. Consider Jesus, holy brothers. Consider Jesus. Prioritize, elevate him. Dedicate your thoughts and fix your mind on him as your avenue of pursuing excellence. The call to consider Jesus is a heavy call. It's a demanding call. It's a call that has a price to it. That means that you're sacrificing other things in order to consider him, in order to prioritize him. Now the next couple verses give us the game plan. So the charge is very simply consider Jesus. And then this goes into the how and the why. Let's look at... Um, Verse 2. Let's start with verse 1. All right, so we know where we're coming from. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the, off, the apostle 
and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him. Why are we considering him? He was faithful. He was faithful to the one who appointed him. Faithfulness to God is to be commended. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 2, it says this, For it, for by it, referring to faith, for by faith the people of old received their commendation. Faithfulness is something that God considers excellent. Faithfulness is something that God considers excellent. Jesus Christ is to be considered because, why? Because he was faithful. Because Jesus was faithful to God, the one who appointed him. A couple years ago, I've shared this before in here, but a couple years ago I was in a class and the professor said that God is calling us to faithfulness before excellence, which means that God's faith, that God's definition of excellence is faithfulness. That we are called to be faithful first. And so many times, I think we can get caught up with the notion of excellence and saying the excellence is defined by I want to do this really well. And sometimes excellence, according to God's standards and definitions, and faithfulness, which is to be commended, is simply just do this as I've called you to. Just do the things that I have, have commanded. And it might not look like pomp and circumstance. It might not look like it's making a difference. But if you are faithful, then I will commend you. And that is what I'm calling you to first. I had a mini crisis when I was doing student ministry because I did student ministry for so many years as a, as a single guy. And as a single guy, I had kind of limitless time. And so I was hanging out with students often. And as a result of that, I had amazing relationships. And as a result of those amazing relationships, we were going far and deep in discipleship with a lot of guys. And I got married, and my life changed. My time commitments changed. My priorities changed, all rightfully. And I had this crisis of realizing that I wasn't hanging out with students as much. I wasn't connecting as much as I was teaching. Relationships weren't nearly as deep. Not nearly as much discipleship was going on. Which were all levels that I defined my excellence as a youth pastor. And then suddenly it, it wasn't there. And so I started asking myself the question, am I losing it? You know, am I screwing this thing up? Um, am, am, I, am I done? Like, how, why is this ship sinking? And it took a while, I think, of, of, of the Lord showing me, Danny, you're called to faithfulness first. You're called to love your wife, to be with her, to love her as Christ has loved the church, and to give yourself up for her. And that means that you're, you're doing the husband thing. And if that means sacrificing some of these other things in ministry, guess what, Danny? I'm God. You're not. I'm in charge of this youth ministry. You're not. And I, in my godness, in my God economy, will use your faithfulness to your wife in greater ways if you're faithful to impact the lives of students than if you took this into your own hands and tried to do things the old way. Does that make sense? It was, an, it was a very well-needed smack in the face of that it turns out this isn't all about me. That excellence isn't how I define it. It's about faithfulness first and trusting that even though it looks like this thing is slimming down and not going where I thought it should or would or could, that that's okay. That, that God's okay with that if I'm faithful. If I'm faithful. Faithfulness before excellence. And so therefore, the text continues on and gives a faithful example. Once again, faithfulness is commended throughout the course of Scripture. Uh, look at the second half of verse 2. It says, Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Moses here is lifted high. 
You know, this is not a text that is, that is belittling Moses. It is saying, hey, hey, look at Moses. But look at Moses as the foundation and as a reference point to then, therefore, see how much more faithful Jesus Christ is. It's so hard to describe something that is indescribable, right? I mean, how do you describe God's glory? Ultimately, you know? How, how do you describe to me how glorious God is? The only way that you can do it is you can try to piece together something that we can relate to, you know? Like, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, all right? We're not farmers here, but we know that that's a big deal, you know? That he, is, he, he has infinite power and strength so that he can, he can change, he can move the continents, he can cause the rain, he can walk on water when he manifests himself as his son, he... Uh, can turn water into wine, that he changes the very laws of nature. Okay, I can get that. Now, now take that and then imagine more. <laughs> That's what he's doing with Moses, all right? Because to the Jews back then, Moses was the, was the pinnacle of faithfulness. Moses was the guy that you looked to. There's a guy named Kent Hughes. He's a pastor. He's still alive. He's in the Chicago area. He was writing on these verses, and he said that to the Jews, we have to realize who Moses was to them. First of all, he was divinely chosen. All right? He was chosen by God to be the, the, this, this prophet, this one who had the voice of God. Second of all, he was the deliverer of the nation of Israel. He was the one that took them out of captivity from the land of Egypt. He split the Red Sea. He was the deliverer. He's also considered the greatest prophet. He was the lawgiver. He was the one that went up to the mountain and actually got the law. That he was the greatest historian because he's the, considered the author of the Torah. And then on top of all that, according to Numbers 12, verse 3, that he was more humble than anybody else. So consider Moses. Consider his faithfulness. And then imagine more. That Jesus Christ was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses... This is verse 2. Also was faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus has been, ca been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. How much more? As much more glory as a builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. There's a building comparison here of, um, I think it's pretty simple. If you have a guy in the neighborhood who builds a house, and the house burns down, that's tragic. Um, but if the man is murdered, it's considered a bigger deal. It's worse, you know, that there's more value in the man than the non-breathing entity that he constructs, you know? If I have something at my house um, and I break it, even if it's of great value, it's too bad. But if I die, it's a bigger, it's a, it's a bigger deal. And it's saying here, it's drawing the example that Moses was great. Moses was faithful, and he was faithful in what God had called him to do. He was faithful to what God had called him to do, but Jesus was even more faithful. Moses was, a, was faithful in God's house, and it says that Jesus Christ is faithful over God's house. Verse 4, every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house, as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken of later. All right, so that's what Moses was called to. But, verse 6, it says, but Christ is faithful all, over all of God's house as a son. How many of you have watched Downton Abbey? It's okay, guys. I kind of, it's all right. I like it. I, I was at a man-to-man -man table. This was last year. And somehow Downton Abbey came up, and this huge burly guy with his tray of food was walking by, and he was like, I just heard someone over here say Downton Abbey. He's like, that's man up. And he just kind of kept going. <laughs> it's okay, you know. Um, Carson, right? He's the head servant. And he has authority in the house to hire and fire. 
Um, he makes the rules. Um, he's the top dog. You know, he's, he's the one that the master of the house goes to. And he's a big deal. Um, but he's not the king of England. You know, this is the comparison. That Moses was faithful in God's house, but Jesus has been faithful over God's house. So it's commendable. And Moses is to be commended. But Jesus Christ is worthy of more glory as the king of England over the entire nation. Whereas Carson is, is faithful with the job that he was given in the house. Jesus is to be commended because of his faithfulness over the house. So, the one that we are to consider more worthy of glory because of his faithfulness, the one that we're called to consider, what is this house that he has been faithful over? Look at the second half of verse 6. We'll start with the beginning of verse 6. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. We are his house. That all of this, Consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. Consider, fix your thoughts on Jesus because he has been faithful to the one who has appointed him. He is more faithful than Moses who is faithful in all of God's house because Jesus has been faithful over all of God's house and we are his house. That Jesus Christ has been faithful not only to God, but he is faithful to us. And he is worthy of our trust in him, which is what? Faith. <laughs> that excellence is faithfulness. That we can trust him. That he is worthy of all of our trust. He has been, he has been faithful to God, and he is faithful to us, to us, and we can trust him. That we can consider him that we can dedicate ourself and our mental capacity to figure out what does this mean to truly consider Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who is more faithful than Moses and more worthy of Moses. And we are his house. And then there's a little two-letter word. Check it out. And we are his house if... If can be a little scary because it means contingency. If. That we are his house if. But there's an action. This is the game plan. There's a charge. Consider Jesus. How do you do that? We've built the whole argument of why we can and we should and we must consider Jesus. We are his house. If indeed... We hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. If we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. <coughs> it's fair, therefore, to ask the question, what does this mean? What does it mean to hold fast your confidence? Or the NIV says to hold on to your courage. And what does it mean to, to boast in your hope? Or in the King James Version, it says to rejoice in, in your hope. These are all identifying qualities of what it means to consider Jesus. To stay true and hold fast to your confidence in him and to hold on to your hope in him through life's up and down, through life's ups and downs, through your insecurities, through things that really go wrong in your life, through confusions when you don't understand, when you even disagree with the way things are going and it looks like the way that God is allowing things to go, that where is your faith? In what are you placing your trust? Is it you, your ability, your identity, your mental capacity, your savings account, the, your, your foreseeable future, any relationship? What 
are you living for? Because if you're living for your job, then you, when your job goes away, you crumble as a result. If you're living for identity and you want relationship and you don't have it, then it's going to affect your confidence and your hope, which is of, etern- of an eternal nature. The King James Version has a little tiny tag on the end of this verse that says, till the end, till the end, boasting or rejoicing in your hope all the way throughout life. You know, the book of Hebrews is a call to remember, to be encouraged by, and a call of warning. A call of warning. Right before this text in Hebrews chapter 2, it says, We must pay close attention to what we have heard unless we drift away. Warning, warning, pay close attention. Fix your thoughts. Consider Jesus. This is a solid warning. There are seven strong warnings in the book of Hebrews, and this text is sandwiched between two of them. This first one here that says, we must pay close attention unless you drift away. The second one is in the text we're looking at next after this, Hebrews 3, verse 12. It says, take care, brothers, unless any of you, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as, as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Warning here. Warning here. And then we're looking at this text that says that Jesus Christ will be faithful to you, but your faithfulness is shown by your perseverance. And it is shown by if you do the things that you're called to do. That is what made Moses excellent, was that he did the things that were appointed to him. That is what made Jesus Christ commended for his faithfulness, because he did the things that were appointed to him. And we have the same calling, faithfulness as it is appointed to us in our life, in the here and now, that we consider Jesus, that we fix our thoughts on Jesus. And I don't know how you can do that any other way than simply spending time in the Word all the time, developing your prayer life, getting involved in a community group at a deeper level than just gathering, speaking into the lives of other believers and looking for other people to speak into your life. Why? Because we need to consider this process of considering. We need to keep going and keep going and keep going that we must fix our thoughts on Jesus. And this is something that is hard every day that we have to mentally say, I'm going to work to put myself in this new place afresh today because of the sake of the gospel, that this is where I need to be living my life in spite of anything else that is going on. So this is a call of encouragement. Holy brothers, Stay true to your holy calling. Why? Because of Jesus, who has been both faithful to God and is faithful over you as house. But you have a calling on your life, too. Be warned. Be encouraged. Remember. Father, I thank you for this morning, and I thank you for this text. And I ask that you would help us with it. In Jesus' name, amen.